Today's podcast episode is brought to you by SEMA Films. SEMA Films is a full-service video production company based in Atlanta, Georgia. They have worked in more than 30 countries around the world telling the stories of nonprofits, churches, and organizations that make a difference. Their videos have launched multi-million dollar fundraising campaigns and helped secure funding for competitive grants. Whatever your story, whatever your need, SEMA Films has the experience to help you tell it. To tell your story today, call 404-796-7467 or email info at samafilms.com. That's info at S-E-M-A-F-I-L-M-S. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Church Starts Conversation. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship and interviews of people doing groundbreaking work of partnering together and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from church starters, pastors, and practitioners. We are rapidly approaching CBS annual gathering known as General Assembly, which will take place June 28th to the 30th in Atlanta, Georgia. On Thursday night, our keynote speaker will be Brian D. McLaren, the author of The Great Spiritual Migration, How the World's Largest Religion is Seeking a Better Way to Be Christian. Brian sat down with me to have a conversation about his keynote for the summer and his recent book. Well, our, our guest for this week's podcast deserves more of an introduction than I can even begin to linguistically calculate. Um, but maybe if you would allow me uh, two anecdotes to, to introduce you. Um, in 2006, I stumbled upon this book entitled The Secret Message of Jesus. And it spoke to me in areas of my heart and soul and ways that I had not been able to communicate this growing tension in my theology between this obvious disconnect from the Jesus preached in churches uh, every Sunday morning and this radically different Jesus of the Gospels. And for many years now, it has, it has been that book when someone asked me the question, what to read next. And I have a, a copy that I've actually passed around to about 10 different friends, and it has uh, accumulated this beautiful wear with folded corners and underlined statements. Uh, and so I, I found you by accident on Amazon, and you have been my favorite author ever since. Oh, um, that's, that's so encouraging. That's great to hear. <laughs> well, and so much so that um, when you responded to my email a couple of days ago about doing this podcast, I was sitting with my wife at home, and she looked at looked the joy and surprise in my face, and she said, what's up? And I said, Brian McLaren just answered my email and agreed to do this podcast interview. And she jokingly responded to me, I, I quote, well, I remember when you used to look at me this way. <laughs> so Brian, thank you for, uh, for taking the time to uh, enter this dialogue about your recent book, The Great Spiritual Migration. Of course, uh, the much anticipated uh, talk you'll have with us at uh, General Assembly this summer. So, so welcome. Thank you. Well, thanks. Thanks for those kind words. And uh, I don't know what to say to your wife, but I hope I'll get to meet her <laughs> this summer. <laughs> Hopefully so. Hopefully so. Uh, I promise, friends, I wouldn't go too fanboy on this. So we'll, we'll jump right into the conversation. Um, as I, as I shared with you yesterday, uh, I kept off reading this book for the fourth time. Uh, so here's my review of The Great Spiritual Migration. It has the grace of a generous orthodoxy, the scholarly depth of the secret message of Jesus, the challenging invitation of we make the road by walking, the inclusiveness of why did Jesus, Moses, Buddha, and Muhammad cross the road, the spiritual depth of finding our way again, and yet it's something altogether different. It was elevating, it was transcendent, and it was radically transformative. So my response is read this book, read this book, read this book. Um, 
what was the great inspiration for you behind this this great work? Well, first, that's those are also very encouraging words, uh, Andy. Um, the, you know, of any book I've written, this is the one that I actually had the hardest time uh, uh, getting into its final form. What I'd wanted to do is write a kind of uh, more of a spiritual uh, uh, formation book um, that really got reflected in the first third of Great Spiritual Migration. Um, but as I worked with my editor, uh, I, I, what became the second and third part of Great Spiritual Migration, that was going to be a book I wanted to write two or three or five years down the road. Um, and so what what became clear, my editor basically said to me, that's the stuff you really want to write and you've got to integrate these somehow. So that's, it was the desire to integrate something that has to do with spirituality, namely formation in the way of love that Jesus taught and exemplified together with a need to deal with this resurgence of violence in the name of religion, including the Christian religion. Mm. And, uh, and then this other struggle that's in the last third of the book, uh, dealing with what the church is and what it's for. So all of that came together and, uh, in, in this book. Well, it's, it's beautifully written, and it's, it's challenging. And you, you do so in a way that's it's so grace-filled, um, you know, because I'm sure you are well aware that you have people that theologically don't agree with you on a lot of points. Um, but what you did was you, you've yet again revisited the message and ministry and teachings of Jesus and and called Christians to this love-centered way of life. And it's um, the shift you made is, is kind of looking at this from a global sense of that we need to globally care for people, uh, no matter their ethnicity, their nationality, their social status, their economic status, their sexual orientation, and in and, and a global way of love that cares deeply for the environment and how that affects everyone in the world, not just the wealthy. Um, and so you called your readers, uh, I think one of the challenging messages that comes in one of the last sections of the book, where you, you called readers uh, to not look to the brick and mortar of the church for change, um, but to look at themselves in the mirror as the beginning of this great spiritual migration. Um, and so it's, it's beautifully penned, but I guess, uh, as we talked about, how do you, how do you begin to live this out um, mm-hmm. in the basic sense? Um, you know, you are well aware we live in a, a day and age where people are polarized when it comes to their their faith, their uh, political allegiance, um, probably our allegiance to our, uh, you know, uh, particular media outlets as a microcosm of our polarization. Yeah. You know, so how do we as, as ministers, first and foremost, how do we step into this polarizing climate and begin to influence people in a positive way towards this, this way of love? Yeah, well, for, first, Andy, there, there's no easy answer to that. I, I mean, anybody who wants a safe and easy answer to that I'm not the right person to ask. I think the only way uh, forward in this is going to require great, a great courage, great honesty, and a willingness to be misunderstood, a willingness to suffer, and then a great challenge of how to speak some painful truths, but to do it with humility, with gentleness, and not with scorn or you know, vitriol. And, and let me, since you mentioned this, let me just say it like this. The version of Christianity that many of us uh, have been taught here in America, especially many of us what people who are white, 
uh, is a version of Christianity that is deeply tainted. In other words, what we consider the, the uh, you know, if it was good enough for my father, it's good enough for me. That's just not true because a racist version of Christianity was good enough for many of our forefathers. A, a form of Christianity that treated women as second-class citizens was good enough for our father, you know, um, uh, or our grandfather. And it's not good enough for us. And, and part of what that means, I think, is for our pastors to become realistic about this fact. And the fact is the most powerful denomination in the world is not the Roman Catholic Church. Well, let me say in America, it's not the Roman Catholic Church. It's not the United Methodist Church, not the Southern Baptist. Bad news, it's not the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. <laughs> uh, the most powerful denomination, uh, you might say, in our country is Fox News. And the constellation of political and economic interests that are expressed through it. A pastor speaks to his congregation for, what, 20 to 40 minutes. I hope it's not longer than 40 <laughs> on, on an average Sunday. Um, but, you know, folks have their radio and their television and their, their Twitter feed giving them another set of, uh, another set of values. And what we're going to have to come to terms with is that the set of values taught by Jesus, the way of life taught by Jesus, is at odds with so much of the messages we're getting through all these other channels. And, mm -hmm. and if pastors become realistic about that, it really, really will help them. If, if they understand, okay, I'm not coming in where everything's fine and I have to make it better. I'm not coming in where everything is normal and I have to make it extraordinary. I'm coming in when the status quo is distorted, the status quo is subpar, the status quo, in fact, is deeply dangerous, and I have to do the delicate but courageous work of bringing about change. Does, does, that, does that get to a response to your question? It does. Uh, I mean, it's... I don't know, and you probably have experienced this, and I don't, I don't mean this to sound um, arrogant or self-righteous, but what I see the ministry and message and teaching and invitation of Jesus is this way of love. So how is it that we have uh, an American Christian culture so disconnected that ministry and message and overarching theme of love to what we've just become accustomed to the last yeah. uh, last hundred years in evangelicalism. I mean, really the last however long in, in, in Christian history. Yeah, well, let, let me try to answer that uh, in two ways. One, historically, and the other, anthropologically. And as you know, this is a big part of what I talk about in the middle third uh, of the book. Um, but historically, uh, what, what we were never told is that, you know, every, every child knows in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, but a lot of people don't know what happened in 1454. And that's when uh, Pope Nicholas V opened the door to, uh, to uh, incredible atrocities. Um, what we call the conquistadors, uh, all of that was unleashed by a papal bull or a papal pronouncement of 1454, where the Pope told all the kings of the Christian kings of Europe to go into all the world and not make disciples, but make slaves. Go into all the world and not preach the gospel, but rather demand surrender other, uh, upon threat of death. Um, it, he commanded conversion by the sword, all kinds of things that 
we would normally associate with ISIS today. Mm-hmm. Pope Nicholas V uh, commanded in 1454. And of course, at that point, this was all under the rubric of the Catholic Church. The Protestant Church, you know, wasn't even going to emerge for another, you know, 60 plus years. But the Protestants and the Catholics basically then both picked up this, this uh, work uh, of colonization. And, and what we don't realize is that the, all the versions of Christianity, if, if we're Protestant, every form of Protestantism emerged in the wake of this colonial conquest unleashed by Pope Nicholas V. Now we could go farther back. We could go back to we could go back to Constantine. We could even go back to the end of the first century, beginning of the second century, when early Christianity took an anti-Semitic turn. Hmm. But I think if we understood that America was founded as part of this con- uh, this um, colonization and conquistador uh, uh, movement, it will help us understand where we went wrong historically. But anthropologically, I think might even be just as important. And that is to say this, we, we human beings are, we have problems. We, we, you know, uh, I think these are reflected, uh, or these come out of our, our ancient evolution. You know, we, we spent tens of thousands of years, hundreds of thousands of years as hunter-gatherers competing with other cr- tribes for scarce resources. Um, we've got this, we've got, uh, our brains have evolved uh, to be very oriented toward fear. And, and when we're so oriented toward fear, we're very easy to, to manipulate. Um, and so uh, when Jesus comes along with this other message to, that says that, that we should live by love, not fear, Jesus is inviting us into a whole new way of life. And the fact that we found it hard, the fact that we keep losing our way, the fact that we take two steps forward and then five steps back, you know, uh, we shouldn't be surprised by that because this is not an easy uh, process. And um, But what that means is th- that all of us who are pastors then, we suddenly understand what we're about is not just putting on a nice, you know, hour or 90-minute religious service every week. We're actually about helping people rewire their brains, mm-hmm. rehabituate themselves and their families and their social networks to start living in a radical new way. That's why, you know, Jesus called people to repent, which means rethink everything. It's why Paul talked about us being a new humanity in Christ. And, and so that's our challenge. I mean, that's a, that's a big, that's a tall order and it's not easy. And that, but that's what we've been called to. Well, I'm sure you're well aware that winners always write history. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I finished um, uh, Karen Armstrong's book uh, it was a couple of years ago, Fields of Blood, which is talking about the merging of uh, violence and faith. And one of the arguments she makes is that oftentimes that uh, religion or faith language is bathed onto violence afterwards. Um, yes. You know, and so ultimately the winners are writing this uh, deified uh, justification behind their actions. And so in many regards, I think that's one of the issues within our culture is that we're not honest enough with our history. And re-examine the history, which you've, you've done in a great sense. I, I did church history for my, um, my undergrad, and uh, I had not encountered some of the documents that you're reading around 
uh, you know, some of the priests that were following around uh, this this expedition and some of the horrific things that were happening. But you know, opening ourselves up to that history, I think, would also soften people in America to this um, this extreme hatred and fear of. Um, people who are doing things in the name of Islam that does not reflect Islam at all uh, yeah. in its true essence. But, um, you know, you've gotten to something that's, that's you know, really practical. You know, how do ministers tackle this? And, and you, really, uh, you really began to, to uh, bring this up in, in the second half of the book um, when you talked about here are some practical ways. And one of the more, um, I think, telling things that you said is, is you know, is that, is that week-to-week um, initiative of bringing about of love-centered way of, of life uh, within the local congregation. You talked about uh, doing love-centered liturgy, uh, giving mm-hmm. and music and prayer. I wonder, have you had um, some congregations share their stories of, of ways they practically put your words into practice? Oh, my goodness. Can I just say that, that that's one of the most uh, kind of rewarding things at this stage in my life, um, especially you mentioned earlier the, the previous book I wrote is called We Make the Road by Walking. And it's an attempt to give people a one year introduction or reintroduction to the Christian faith by giving them an overview of the Bible from a, a fresh vantage point. And and it's been very exciting to, you know, to see churches uh, around the country, actually around the world, um, uh, use this as a year-long kind of spiritual formation or reformation uh, for their people. And what's even more exciting, uh, I was just with a church in New Jersey a couple of weeks ago, Presbyterian Church, where they're doing this with the adults, and then their youth group is working through this with their, their youth, and the kids' ministry people are working on it with their kids. And and that's when things to me really start to become exciting when it's not just a little, it's not just an exception, but we're, we're trying to actually get a fresh vision of the whole thing from soup to nuts, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and to me, a huge part of this only works when we get our music right. <laughs> you know, uh, I have a daughter who's a music therapist and in music therapy, uh, you know, they, they are focused on how music, works in the brain. Uh, my, my daughter has a, uh, a client who, uh, a woman, I think in her 40s, who had a serious car accident and had uh, brain trauma. And she wasn't able to speak because the stuttering was so extreme. She literally had the sentence she wanted to say in her mind, but couldn't even get one word of a sentence out. Mm. And uh, my daughter worked with her and helped her start to sing the sentences she wanted to say. And it turned out you know, if she took the tune Twinkle, Twinkle Little Star, she could say, I want to go to the store today, you know, and, and suddenly the sentence she was trying to say would come out in song. Well, I think that, um, you know, this is where we need a whole, we, we've had 50 years and more of arguing, you know, the worship wars about guitars versus organs, but we haven't paid attention to the content of what we sing very much. And and so you think if if we were to sing in ways that reinforce the set of values that we we now see are so important. Obviously, it needs to affect our preaching. It needs to affect our prayers. But it also needs to affect the way we celebrate holidays. And and if we could start to see these things in an integrated way. uh, You know, it's not that people have tried this and it didn't work. It's that we haven't had anything like a thorough reboot around love, even though... (laughs) 
you know, First Corinthians 13 has been there since the beginning. <laughs> we still haven't gotten the message on that. But I think congregations are beginning to, and that's very exciting for me. This seems like a good place for us to pause to share with you about one of our sponsors for today's episode, Next Sunday Resources by Smith & Helwes. Does it matter what's being taught in your church Sunday school? Many small group Bible studies gloss over the tough questions or suggest overly simple answers to life's most difficult problems. Next Sunday Resources, an imprint of Smith & Helwes Publishing, has been providing quality Bible study choices to churches like yours for more than 25 years. Want to spark class discussion? Our Formations Adult Bible Study Series is designed to help your church members study the Bible seriously and in community with one another. Looking to connect Sunday School with worship? Our Connections Adult Bible Study Series provides the lectionary-based study approach, offering a seamless experience between small group Bible study and your church's time of worship. Need a boost to your youth Sunday School? Both Formations and Connections offers one-page downloadable lessons tied to adult curriculum, so parents can easily discuss these with their youth after church. Have questions? Visit nextsunday.com or give us a call at 1-800-747-3016 because we know it does matter what your church teaches next Sunday. Now back to our conversation with Brian. You said something earlier uh, um, in our conversation, but also um, it's conveyed in the book that, um, you know, one of the reasons there isn't a shift is fear and control. That, um, you know, institutions of all levels uh, at the top it's a fear of a loss of control, of comfort, of livelihood. Um, can we talk a little bit more about that, about what it would take um, within a congregation's institution, uh, a, a denomination, um, to, to continue to make this shift um, yeah. together? Um, because it's so easy to say, you know, see ya, we're done, but how do we do this together? Yeah. Well, let, could, could I speak very specifically about uh, CBF? Sure. Uh, you know, it seems to me you all are in a really unique situation because as uh, I know this is a big anniversary uh, this year, but, you know, compared to other denominations, you all are still a, a young denomination. Mm-hmm. And you come from a very passionate and determined and, and intentional, uh, you know, Baptist tradition. But you, you've had a chance, in a sense, to reboot for a new, new context. So here's what I would say. Um, it, ha- it has to begin with new congregations. And this is where you all have a great advantage because Baptists have always been very committed to starting new congregations. And you've been way more inventive and creative and, and flexible in that than most other denominations. So it, I think these things always start with the formation of new congregations because the new congregations can, can take 20 steps forward, you know, and, and start at, a, at a, a good place. Now, sadly, too often, new congregations just imitate something that's already being done rather than innovating. Mm. But where I really have hope is that we'll see more and more new congregations start, and this will be their starting point. Um, then existing congregations can imitate the innovations of the new congregations, because existing churches very seldom innovate, but they're but they're good at imitating. And that's why the two go together, uh, new churches and existing churches. Um, and, and here's where I think we could be at the beginning of a very exciting renaissance. I mentioned music a minute ago. Some friends of mine have started something called the Convergence Music Project. They're getting songwriters together and, uh, and trying to write the, 
the new Hennedy and the new, you know, song repertoire that we need. Well, uh, that, that stuff didn't, it was hard to find or didn't exist 20 years ago, but it's starting to come together now. And, and so that becomes an option for people. There are ways of preaching from the scriptures that, that integrate the personal and the prophetic or the personal and the social. Uh, and, uh, but we didn't have many models of that 25 or 50 years ago. We had some churches that specialized on very personalistic, uh, you know, personal, personal um, spirituality messages, and then others that really emphasize social justice. But you know what? Now we've got more and more pastors who are modeling this integration in beautiful ways. And so it seems to me you get enough innovation happening that there are models in the different areas of church life, and then people can start imitating and pulling those things together and sharing resources and uh, that is the beginning, I think, of that's when we can talk about a movement. And, and I, I think, you know, for CBF, um, this is really the dream in CBF, is not just to be a denomination, but to really see a spiritual movement uh, uh, grow and take root. And, and not just, you know, get back to some golden days of the past, but really to explore uh, new, the, the new territory of the future. Mm. Uh, you know, for my uh, bosses at CBF, I just want you to hear the endorsement that Brian just gave for my job since I coordinate new church starts. Uh, you know, he's saying this is a vital role for the future for CBF. And um, you know, one of the cool things about being in this role is that we are starting to see, uh, as you spoke of in the book, of we don't need to stay within our own tribe um, or polarized groups, but begin to build across denominational lines. And so uh, we're commissioning this summer, um, the night after you speak, um, our first Mennonite slash CBF church start uh, in Denver, Colorado, uh, partnering with other groups, PCUSA, United Methodist, just across the board. And so we're starting to see this beautiful um, greater kingdom community take place by being open uh, to something more. And, and I would certainly say that the leadership of Susie Painter, our executive coordinator, has, has a lot to do with that. Um, you know, Susie has taken us from uh, a group that identified from what we were and what we were yes. uh, going away from to who we are and where we're going in the future. Mm. Uh, and it's, it's a beautiful uh, thing uh, to be a part of, of uh, partnering together to renew God's world in, in our small ways and in, in the ways that we're responsible for. Um, your, your book is, is, is a call for this great migration to a, a new love-centered Christian orientation. But at the same time, there's others, um, and I don't like using labels, but others from a more conservative bent um, who are, are proposing the opposite. Uh, Rod Dreyer in his new book, The Benedict Option, is calling for this migration from um, this kind of periphery view of society and then kind of turning inward uh, to a communal living and, and quote, orthodox theology. Um, what, do you, what do you make of this? How do our churches that are, are so diverse, um, and some see these cultural shifts and are okay with it, some see these cultural shifts and are resistant to it, how do we handle... Um, whether we are from the right, the left, or the center, um, how do we learn to better live together and to love together? Yes. Well, um, as I said before, I, I don't think this is easy. And I actually think this needs to be difficult. And the reason I say this is because uh, you, you can't, you know, what, what Rod Dreher, who I have a lot of respect for, I, I, I disagree with him, but I, I see him as an honest and good-hearted person, uh, and I agree that he should feel free to do what he feels called to do. 
I just don't think it's everybody's calling or everybody's cup of tea, if we can say it that way. Mm -hmm. I, I also think, uh, it, it, uh, well, the, the irony to me is that uh, when people act as if suddenly culture has taken this terrible turn for the worse, and we were okay 50 years ago or 100 years ago. Let me just say, it's easy for white people to say something like that. <laughs> right. Uh, but, you know, for a whole lot of people, they would just scratch their head and think, how could anybody say things were so great until we allowed gay marriage? Listen, you know, for gay people, it wasn't so great. And how could people say, oh, it was so great in the 50s before we had the Civil Rights Act? You <laughs> see, so, so part of what I would say is, I agree with Rod that we are, uh, you know, we shouldn't act as if we're at home in culture. I, I maybe disagree with his interpretation of when things were so good. Hmm. Um, but uh, I, uh, I, I think what we have to do, and I think CBF is structured well to help this happen, is there are churches that do not want to change. They just want to stay the same. They, they, they might have older people who are, they've been friends for 30 years, 50 years. They're passing away. And, and to disturb them, you know, I have a mother who's 90. Listen, I just want my mom to be able to sing the hymns that she's always sung. And, you know, that's all she can handle. And she, and I want, don't want her everything that's familiar to her to be ripped away from her in her last few years on earth. Right. I, I think when Jesus said, you know, don't, don't be one of those people who puts, who, who puts a stumbling block in someone's way. So I think there are churches that don't want to change and, and they should be left alone um, and, and shouldn't be pushed around, but they should not hold hostage the younger people who live in a different world than their parents and grandparents. And uh, we have an emergency situation on our hands. We have, as you know, from, you know, reading my writings, I, I think this, that we have a, a, an environmental emergency on our hands. This is not just a problem. This is, this threatens the, the, the cost that's ahead for us. If we don't figure out how to live lovingly and respectfully with the earth, it's, it's, I think it, if people thought about it very much, they would be terrified. Mm. Um, uh, we, we have an absolute crisis on our hands about racism, because if white people are going to try to reassert the kind of white privilege and white supremacy that was normative in this country for its first couple hundred years, then it's going to be ugly. It's going to be horrible. And for people who want to do that in the name of Christianity, you know, with this resurgence of white Christian nationalism, I mean, this is such a betrayal of Christ, and it's such a reversion to the worst atrocities of our past. So, you know, we could add other areas as well, but to me, these are issues of emergency, and we need churches that can mobilize for the emergency. Let me say it this way. I live in Southwest Florida. We, we get hurricane warnings from time to time, um, and uh, there are old folks' homes where the people, and, and nursing homes, where the emergency is going to hit, but you're not going to disrupt the people. You, you know, you just want the people to be safe. Mm. But when the emergency hits, you want other people to get out there and start, you know, preparing for the emergency and getting the boats out of the water and getting the windows covered up and getting all the furniture tied down. And, you know, 
And I think that's the kind of situation that we're in. And it's not just an emergency of danger. It's also an emergency of opportunity. And so we need, I mean, I'm so grateful that you're in the job you're in because we need visionary people to unleash younger generations to dream big and to go far and to not be held back and held hostage by the people who don't want to change. God bless them. Just don't let them uh, hold the rest of us prisoner. You spoke of that. I mean, you, you talked about that. We, we could spend so many so much time and so much energy spinning our wheels, uh, expecting to change other people who aren't there. And you talked about that, you know, how do we let this world know this new kind of Christianity? Yeah. Um, you spoke about building and creating new communities, uh, igniting youth movements, um, a, a new way of training leaders. Um, in, in many regards, and you even hit on this, that the struggle for many seminarians is that you uh, are being trained in these theological shifts that are taking place uh, within our faith, but yet they go to congregations that aren't there yet. And, yes. you know, sometimes the frustration, but they have to take those jobs because of growing debt. But also there's a sense of uh, a calling. They do want to yes. serve these people. So how do you, how do you settle into that? How do you, yeah. while we don't want to change people, while we do want to say, let people uh, have their perspectives and, and those types of things, how do you, how do you serve within a congregation that is not ready to move? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I think there are, uh, there are probably three options there. Um, the first option is that you settle in for the long haul and you, you develop a, a plan, a, a transitional change plan. And uh, there are great books, uh, great you know, resources on how to do that. I think of my friend Alan Roxborough has written some really good books exactly on that question. And, and what these plans usually involve is that, well, there was an old church consultant years ago named Lyle Schaller, and Lyle used to say, you move with the movers. And what that means is you find the people in the congregation who are ready to move forward, the people who represent the future, and you begin meeting with them. You have private meetings with them. You spend a lot of time with them. You uh, get them to spread their influence. Uh, you, you know, so you develop, in a sense, the old Latin term for this was ecclesiola and ecclesia, a little church within the big church. Mm -hmm. um, the other word for this is discipleship. Another word for it is leadership development. You're developing lay leaders who will help lead the congregation in the direction you want to go. It's like uh, community organizing. It's like starting a little movement inside the church. Now, you've got to expect that's going to lead to some points of tension. But it's a very different role for the pastor if he's got a group of people moving strongly and with a good spirit in the right direction, the pastor then can, in a sense, be the moderator to help manage this tension. And, and that's a good place for a pastor to be. So that's a first option. Um, I, I think a, uh, a second option is the pastor says, okay, the 11 o'clock service is going to stay exactly the way it is. And all the people in the church who are really happy with that that's the service that they'll go to. And my job is to serve them and help them have the service that they want. But I'm not just a paid employee of the church. I'm a minister of Jesus Christ. And so I've got a calling from God. And so if I'm called to do more than what the people want me to do at 11, nothing's stopping me from starting something on Thursday night. Maybe I start a dinner group on Thursday night, or maybe on Sunday night, or maybe on, you know, whatever. 
maybe I start something online. The options are endless. Pastors have so much more power and freedom than they often realize. So that would be a second possibility. And then the third, a third possibility is that they, I call this doing something on the side, where they say, okay, I'm being paid by this church 40 hours a week. Uh, a whole lot of pastors work 55 hours a week. So what I'd suggest is cut back to 40 and then take 15 hours on your own time and start something on the side that you are not being paid by the church to do. Mm. And that might be a dinner group. That might be, uh, uh, you know, you might have a group of people you take on a retreat four times a year and it's not on the church, you know, uh, timesheet, so to speak. So those would be three options of ways that I've seen it being done and ways that I think uh, it can be done. Uh, It doesn't mean there won't be tension. It doesn't mean there won't be criticism. But look, anybody who's been a pastor for, you know, six months knows there's criticism no matter what you do. (laughs) You might as well get criticized doing something really worthwhile. And I, I realizing when I'm asking that question, I don't mean to paint our congregations or, you know, not just within CBF life or other denominations uh, in a negative light. And, but ministers are afforded the opportunity to think theologically, you know, 24 seven, it's our, it's our job, it's our calling. Um, you know, and so many of our congregants aren't there. Um, and so I think one of the things that you, you've proposed is, is bringing people along the way with you. Um, you know, sometimes pastoral leadership style is to sprint to the top of the mountain and then look back down wondering why not everybody's there with you, yes. you know, so back, backtrack, you know, bring people along the trail with you. And I think the, the options you've, you've offered are, are quite refreshing. Um, I want to be respectful of your time and kind of maybe draw, uh, draw us to a last kind of thing that really, really stuck out to me from, uh, from your writing over these years, um, is I think one of the most thought-provoking and life-giving aspects of your writing is that you offer an alternative thought to this prevailing Christian worldview, yet you do it in a way that doesn't alienate those who oppose you. Uh, you have such grace for those who might rival and condemn you. And there's a quote that came from chapter 10, and um, it, and I wish I could read the whole, the whole thing. It's probably better for you to just say it, but um, you wrote, you can't learn to love people without being around actual people, including people who infuriate, exacerbate, annoy, offend, frustrate, encroach upon, resist, reject, and hurt you, thus tempting you not to love them. Um, how did you learn to turn criticism and personal attacks into something wholly refining to your soul? How did you get to that point? Um, what and how long did that take? Yeah, so... The the problem with your question is it makes it it makes the assumption that I've actually arrived and <laughs> so far I've arrived. But I tell you, any my sense is that as soon as I get good at handling a certain kind of trial, then I get a new round of trials that are much harder. <laughs> so, I'm glad to know I'm not the only one. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's just you know. But uh, here's a couple of things I I would say. First, we all have different personalities, and and I think any young leader has to has to know, you know, get to know themselves. Part of loving your neighbors yourself means you love yourself and you understand yourself. And, and so I know that my response to criticism, I don't lash back, I don't insult. Uh, I, I, you know, my, my, my temptation in criticism is to withdraw and to, and I call it selling the store, you know, to say, oh, you don't like my product, I'll just get out of the business entirely. You know, I, 
I, I'm easily discouraged and I'm easily intimidated uh, by nature. I'm not a fighter by nature. So what that meant for me is I, I had a thin skin and I was easily discouraged. And uh, yet I felt this calling to say things that I felt were necessary and, and rooted in scripture and rooted in the gospel and so on. And so I struggled with that for a long time. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you a couple of things I learned. I, I learned one, you have to know what recharges you. Mm. And if, if, if people haven't learned what recharges them, they can't afford to get drained by conflict. So you need to know what recharges you. And for me, it's solitude, it's nature, it's art, it's, you know, uh, just live music. <laughs> I was at a restaurant a couple of weeks ago and it was a Greek restaurant and they had a guy walking around playing the accordion. I, I don't know what it is, uh, you know, but just live music to be in the presence of someone making music. It just recharges me. So everybody finds out what that is for them. And, and, uh, and so when you're being drained a lot by criticism, you have to invest all the more in what, what recharges you as a human being. That's just being a friend to yourself. The second thing is you have to have friends who are there for you no matter what. One of my mentors calls this non-utilitarian relationships. And, and we all have to find some of those friends. And, and, uh, and when you're hurt, those are the people you need to call and say, man, I got this stuff and kicked out of me after church on Sunday. And we just need somebody to listen to us. And, and we need somebody to confide in. And, and uh, sometimes that's best a professional, you know, a counselor, a therapist, a spiritual director. Sometimes it's just a deep soul friend, but all of us need that. But I'll tell you the third thing that really made a difference for me. Uh, uh, one, of my, one of my mentors uh, years ago handed me this couple pieces of paper stapled together. Um, do you remember what a ditto machine is? Like a lot of people <laughs> never heard of it, but it was a, these were from a ditto machine, which tells you how old they were. <laughs> and it was an old prayer um, that had been written by a Serbian Orthodox bishop. And uh, he had been a prisoner in Dachau. He, he uh, had spoken against the Nazis. And then when the Nazis invaded Yugoslavia, he was immediately arrested and put in jail, which let him know that one of his priests was an informant. Mm. One of his priests had told the Nazis that he was, not, uh, he, he was a critic of the Nazis. So here he is in prison. He doesn't know if he's going to live or die. And all he can think of is how, who did it? Who betrayed me? And he's just so filled with rage and a desire for vengeance. And then he thinks, I don't want my soul to be this way, you know? And so he struggles through this and writes a prayer called the prayer for enemies. And uh, uh, I, I, uh, if anyone is interested, if you just, um, if you just Google prayer for enemies, uh, Serbian Orthodox, Bishop, you'll, you'll, it'll come right up. And uh, I'll just tell you, he, my mentor gave me this prayer, and I kept it on my desk. And I don't have it memorized word for word, but most of it I have in my heart. And it just gave me language that helped me. Like, I'll give you one, one line from the prayer. Um, just as a hunted animal finds safer shelter than an unhunted animal, so I, pursued by my enemies, have found safer shelter in the shadow of your wings. And, you know, when I read those words, and still today when I ponder them, 
I just think it's really true. Uh, I've been driven deeper into God by critique and, and, and misunderstanding and so on. And so all I can say is that that whatever is necessary to help us go deeper into God, deeper into finding out who we are, what is ours to do, uh, getting things in perspective, the, the, uh, the, that prayer near the end, uh, it, it says that basically through struggling with the criticism of my enemies, uh, I, my heart can become the grave of my two evil twins, uh, uh, anger and uh, fear. And, and, and you just realize, yeah, this is what happens when I'm criticized. I have a surge of anger and a surge of fear. And you know what? Anger and fear are my real enemies, you know, not the people who are forcing me to deal with my own anger and fear. And so uh, that's been invaluable to me. And, uh, and I, 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 it's, it's a gift you wouldn't wish on anybody, but it's going to be necessary for anyone who wants to lead. That's powerful. Well, I'd like to think that speaking in June at CBS General Assembly is, is going to be the pinnacle high point of your year. But outside of that, what, what's next for Brian? <laughs> well, I really am looking forward to being with you all. And it is a, a big anniversary for you all. And I'm, I'm such a, a fan of, of CBS. So I, I am looking forward to that very much. Um, I am, uh, I, I've had a long break without writing. You know, I finished that book, Great Spiritual Migration, and I haven't been writing since. And so in the next couple months, I, I actually, uh, a few days ago, I started work on my next book, which is going to be a very different book for me if this is what, if it sort of continues to click. Um, I'm, I'm planning to write a book that's not uh, on the church, but it's actually a book about America. And uh, uh, the, the tentative title is New America. And I'll be co-writing it with an uh, African-American friend. And we, we're seeing the political unrest that's going on in our country as an opportunity to try to clarify just what we talked about earlier, that we need to have a greater understanding of our past. And then that will help us to have a better vision for our future. So uh, that's the next project I'll be working on. Mm. Well, if you need anybody to get a sneak peek of that, you know, well before it ever comes to the publisher, it's a hail at cbf.net. Okay. You, I, <laughs> uh, you're, you're on my list. I'm <laughs> I'll, I'd love your uh, feedback. So that's great. Thank you so much. Well, to say that this has been an absolute honor and joy is, is an understatement. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for um, being the voice of this great spiritual migration. I know you would say you're just one of many, but uh, you speak uh, in a way that many of us can't, can't quite communicate what we're battling with uh, theologically. So thank you. Well, thanks. We're, we're in this together, uh, my brother, and uh, with all the folks who are listening, we're all in this together. Uh, you know, uh, I, I often want to say to pastors, listen, these are hard times, and it's not your fault. <laughs> you know, <laughs> It's not your fault. This is part of what it just means to be alive right now. And even though it's not easy, my goodness sakes, it's just, we, we have the opportunity to make a difference at a time when it really, really matters. So... Uh, uh, so we're in this together. And thanks. Thanks for your good work. 
Before we go, it's important to let you know about one more of our sponsors. The School of Divinity at Gardner-Webb University exists to prepare men and women for Christian ministry, namely the work of the Lord's Church. Our two degrees, the Master of Divinity and Doctorate of Ministry, are carefully designed to equip and encourage ministers for the calling God has placed on their lives. The Master of Divinity offers six concentrations, and the Doctorate of Ministry can be obtained in either Christian ministry or pastoral care and counseling. Should God have called you to any number of ministry vocations, or if you aren't quite sure which one yet, you will find a place here at Gardner-Webb where, as one of our former deans once said, your heart and your head can be friends. The School of Divinity strives to provide a holistic education that stretches the mind, stirs the heart, and prepares the call for Christian ministry. Immerse yourself in the life of our community and visit gardner-webb.edu backslash divinity for more information. Again, a special thanks to Sama Films, Smith & Hellwees Publishing, and Gardner-Webb Divinity School for sponsoring today's episode. Be sure to visit cbf.net backslash church starting for more information about the church start initiative, including the discernment cohort, innovation group process, coaching, internships, and including stories from our church starters from across the fellowship.